It's Zhang Hu Hustle. Hello and welcome to another episode of Zhang Hu Hustle. I'm here with my co-host Eric Farmer. And I'm here with special guest James Mendez-Hodes. And I'm here with the first guy, Eli Kurtz. Hey, today we're watching Yagyu Clan Conspiracy as an intro to the Chanbara genre of samurai film. Uh, Mendez picked this whenever we talked about having him come on as a guest, and we're really excited to discuss it. So welcome, Mendez. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your projects and stuff if uh, they don't know you already? Yeah, sure. Uh, So I'm James Mendez-Hodes. I'm based in the greater New York metropolitan area on traditional Lenape land. I am a game designer, game writer, uh, and cultural consultant, and I also do editing and developing. And there's so many different words for the stuff that I do in game design. (laughs) And for me, it feels like one thing, but there are so many words for it. But uh, some past projects that you might know me from uh, include uh, Scion 2nd Edition, 7th C 2nd Edition... I wrote four pages of Monster Hearts that I'm really proud of. I guess I I have to admit to having written for Legend of the Five Rings. (laughs) I can't hide that anymore. I have done that. Uh, One of my biggest uh, current projects is called Thousand Arrows. It is an apocalypse world hack that's about the Japanese Warring States period. takes place uh, a couple decades before uh, our movie today, but features some of of the same characters. We're really glad to have you on because we had an episode in the past where we where we compared sort of different genres. And when we hit Chambara, it was clear that we didn't know what we were talking about. Uh, <laughs> I'm a little ahead of you. I'm not, yeah. I wouldn't consider myself like an expert. There's no experts here. I've, I've done some research for Thousand Arrows. Oh, I also, I read a lot of essays. So if you, if you read an essay recently complaining about racism or orcs or racist orcs, that was probably me. Yeah, and for folks who haven't connected the dots just yet, we are usually uh, retweeting those articles whenever they come out, like within an hour. So uh, we we respect a lot what Mendez has to say about basically everything. Yeah. (laughs) So before we get into the movie, we need to uh, thank our patrons. Of course, we have a Patreon uh, up and running to fund our game design efforts and to uh, sort of give us some compensation for the show here. Uh, If you are interested, please head over Patreon.com com slash hustle and uh, check out our different reward levels. We uh, spend some of that money supporting uh, an Asian creator. Right now it's Mabel Harper and then also um, Asian Americans Advancing Justice, a nonprofit. And so some of your money goes to the, those causes as well. Uh, those but, are both dope. Yeah, they're pretty rad. Uh, Mabel especially yeah. is sick she's awesome yes um okay so anyway uh without any further ado all of the band all of the many different bands that mabel is yeah for sure at least 10 or 12 combined into one. (laughs) yes we love you mabel um okay all right with no more ado andrus gabrielson andreas devour andrew dacey brian kurtz chromatic chameleon craig dave david millions Derek smith eric bontz fraser ronald gallant night games j david chrisman jared rasher jason detman jeremy marr jim john cole kevin lovecraft Laura Penrod, Leonard Murphy, Liam Murray, Lowell Francis, Misdirected Mark Productions, PK, Rob Abrazado, Sean Nicholson, Sean P. Kelly, and Todd Crapper. Thank you very much for your support. We appreciate it so much. All right. So before we crack onto the film, just a little content warning. This one's not really that bad in comparison to some of the garbage that we've watched. (laughs) But uh, there is some gore. There's quite a bit of violence. uh, And there's a really awesome beheading. But if any of that bothers you, just be 
warned that that content is in there. There is a surprising lack of nudity. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and a lack of sexual assault, too, which was... Right. For This is 1978. I, right. I expected way more of that. <laughs> it's true. It's true. We've seen a lot of it in uh, different movies we've watched. It's nice to dodge those bullets every once in a while. So, uh, Eric, you want to talk to us about the basic details of the film? Sure. So we watched Yagyu Clan Conspiracy from 1978. The director was Fukusaku Kinji. The writer was also Fukusaku Kinji, Nogami Tatsuo, and Matsuda Hiro. And the cinematographer was Norimichi Ikawa. We've got uh, Yorozuya... Kinosuke as Lord Yagyu Mununori. Uh, we have the legendary Sonny Chiba as his son, Yagyu Jubei. Uh, we have Matsukata Hiroki as Prince Tokugawa Iemitsu. Saigo Terahiko as Prince Tokugawa Tadanaga. Um, we have Moroda Hideo as uh, Nagoro Sagenta. And then in bit parts, uh, we have Sanada Hiroyuki and Mifune Toshiro. Uh, I forget who Sonata was, but Mifune Toshiro plays one of the less important Tokugawas, uh, Tokugawa Yoshinao, but they still get to have their names on the poster. Yeah, I missed yep. Mifune. I was looking out for Mifune for the whole movie. I just completely missed him. <laughs> I did too. I had to trust the credits to tell me the truth. I, I was like, oh, too bad. Uh, Sonata Hiroyuki plays Hayate, one of the young uh, members of the Nagoro clan. Oh, okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. One of the last folks alive in this carnival of blood. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so speaking of that, let's go through the plot here. Uh, I'll go ahead and start it off. So the year is 1624, and Hidetada, the second shogun of the Tokugawa shogunate, has been poisoned. His heir, Prince Ayamitsu, is ugly and stammering and unpopular, and that's how he's described in the movie. His younger son, Prince Tadanaga, is handsome and admired and favored for succession by his mother. Uh, the various military commanders divide their loyalty. Wait, can I can I just princes. throw something in real quick? Sure, sure. Um. His mother is Yamada Isuzu, who is maybe the most legendary actor of all of these people. Oh, okay. Good to know. Yeah. Yeah. That, so we, there were a lot of characters in this, and we didn't really have much context for the performers. And so we were just trying to focus on the main characters. But the mom, yeah, perfect uh, perfect trivia there. Thank you very much. Yeah. She she was um, – I, I think of her mostly as uh, she plays Lady Macbeth. In Throne of Blood, oh, okay, nice. Spiderweb Castle, opposite uh, Mifune Toshiro as uh, as Macbeth. Ah, very cool. Okay, well, thanks for the note. That's uh, good to know. We should add her to the show notes before we wrap up. All this happens, and then the various military commanders divide their loyalties between the two princes and the imperial nobility. A third party hope this that this weakens the overall power of the shogunate. Prince Iemitsu's fencing instructor, Lord Yagu Muninori, and two of his advisors reveal that they conspired to poison the shogun so that Prince Iemitsu could become the third shogun. They all pressure Prince Iemitsu into seeing this through. Lord Yagu recruits the warriors of his family, Nagoro Sagenta, to fight for the Prince Iemitsu. Meanwhile, Prince Tadanaga recruits Ronin to his own cause. A bloody stalemate occurs, and several of Lord Yagu's children die. He remains committed to the cause. So eventually, Prince Iemitsu and Lord Yagyu manipulate the imperial nobility into supporting uh, Iemitsu's bid for Shogun. Prince Tadanaga learns of this and resolves to beat his brother to the capital and to reveal the poisoning plot first. Tadanaga sends Ronin, that's masterless samurai like Knight's Errant, but like sketchy and detestable, mm-hmm. um, 
So Tadanaga hires these ronin to attack Iemitsu on the journey, but Lord Yagyu stages a decoy and the ronin kill the imperial envoy instead. The scandal causes the emperor to banish Tadanaga and proclaim Iemitsu the new shogun. So the whole village of Nagoro waits to be rewarded for their success, but they also mourn the death of their leader, Sagenta. Meanwhile, an influential lord learns of Iemitsu's trick, and he confronts Lord Yagyu. Lord Yagyu frames Nagoro and sends the army to kill them all. Then Lord Yagyu goes to Prince Tadanaga with a decree from Iemitsu that Tadanaga commit uh, ritual suicide. After Tadanaga's death, the new shogun honors the Yagyu Shinkage school of fencing. Uh, Lord Yagyu's dream is achieved. But it all comes crashing down when Jubei discovers the massacre at Nagoro. He goes to the palace, cuts off the shogun's head, and throws at his father's feet before fleeing. Lord Yagyu breaks under the shock of the betrayal as the movie closes. Yeah. What an ending. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> it's a real snowballing <laughs> plot, too. Eric and I were talking about how it feels like everything is just spooling out perpetually until the final act, and then it all comes crashing together. And by yeah. the end of it, the final minutes even, there are some huge revelations. Yeah, it's it's tragedy in the very classical sense. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. We, where we have we have this this driven person, and we see the effects of his ambition ripple out and punish all of the people around him. There are the moments in the film where, uh, so this is something that we kind of skipped over in our plot summary, but Lord Yagyu's children are commonly seen amongst the Nagoro clan, and in the course of Nagoro's exploits all of the children end up getting killed except for Yagyu Jubei. And when that happens, somebody brings that to Lord Yagyu's attention and they're, you know, offering consolation and he doesn't seem to care. He's just totally focused on his goal and even the death of his family doesn't affect him. As we break into the the research section of the show, there's some like interstitials that like tries to explain some some narration that tries to explain sort of like what's going on at the beginning and sort of like part by part as we go through the movie. It gives it a sense of it being like a true to life sort of historical story. But obviously there's there's some fictionalization going on here. Do you have some insight on that, Mendez? Yes. Yeah. So um, to give a, a little bit of a little bit of historical background. So this movie takes place in 1624. And the Japanese Warring States period, which was a basically a 150 year long free for all civil war with like a couple dozen sides um, had been going on between 1467 and 1615. And it ended uh, after a long, long, long series of complicated betrayals uh, with the Matsudaira clan becoming the Tokugawa shogunate. And uh, so the, the Tokugawas were the ones who were finally able to not only unify Japan, but also keep Japan under their control because they were some of history's greatest politicians. So this is 1624. And one of the, one of the clans that was serving the Tokugawa shogunate was the Yagyu clan. So they come from Yagyu village, uh, which is... Uh, not far from modern day Tokyo and Kyoto. And they were kind of a, they're kind of a minor country clan. They're not one of the really, really big names. Um, and the one thing they were famous for was they had this fencing style, which was supposed to be the best in all of Japan. 
And anytime in anime or movies or anything like that, when you need to show how badass somebody is, you show them beating a bunch of guys from the Yagyu Shinkage school. <laughs> um, like if you've seen the first episode of Samurai Champloo, it starts with Jin uh, kicking a bunch of Yagyu Shinkage guys' asses. Yeah, okay. I knew the name was familiar. So, so Yagyu and, and like, so the Yagyu Shinkage school, my martial arts master tells us, um, like if you ask him, how would you beat a Yagyu guy? He'd tell you that there's no way, just don't, don't fence those guys. Mm. Like he tells us we can wrestle them, but just like (laughs) if you have weapons and they have weapons, they're just going to win. And there's not really a way around that. Yeah. But so in, in real life, the Yagyu clan were, they were a pretty small clan. They didn't have a lot of power except in that they were, they were direct retainers to the shogun. And in particular, they were the fencing instructors to the Tokugawa shogunate. So that made them these like really romantic figures. So Munanori, the, the guy who's kind of the arch villain of this movie was in real life. Uh, like he's a really pretentious guy. I have this book by Yagyu Minonori in front of me, and it's a great book, but he's, like, always showing off how much he knows about, like, Chinese classics and Buddhism and Taoism and stuff like that. He needs you to know exactly how educated and refined he is because he's, like, this poor country samurai, and if he doesn't show off, people are going to think he's a hick. Yeah, so in real life, he was a he was a pretty decent guy, although, you know, constantly showing off, mm-hmm. which was a very practical thing for him to do. Um, and then his son was this mysterious badass um, who mysteriously disappeared from uh, the Tokugawa shogunate's service and then went on like a martial pilgrimage to go wander around Japan and beat people up until he felt like he was a better person. And then he reappears. So a lot of the uh, the character of uh, Yagyu Jubei in, in this movie is an attempt to explain why Jubei disappeared. And it's also a response to a lot of like sort of pop culture myths that built up in Japan about uh, Yagyu Munonori and Yagyu Jubei. You know, people creating fiction, looking at these characters and thinking they can't really have been that simple, could they? Like, th- there's got to be something else that's weird and conspiratorial going on with them, or they never would have gotten here. And they they were also like reported to have connections to uh, various like military intelligence traditions. Um, which were, you know, never, never really proven. But that's why in movies and stuff, the Yagyu clan always have a whole bunch of ninja friends. Like the in this movie, that's the Negoro clan. Who I can't figure out what the what the deal is with these guys historically, but they're fascinating. In the movie, uh, when it cuts to Yagyu village, it shows a bunch of these kind of scruffy-looking, colorful farmer types all standing around, and then some of them get like initiated into some kind of warrior society. And then the weapons they use are a bunch of farming tools that look like they mm-hmm. might be from Okinawa. Like there's, they've got like karate weapons or something like that. Yeah, yeah. The sai and uh, I don't they know have what a, that little knife was. Yeah, they have a, a kama which they hold backwards like a little scythe, mm-hmm. and then they have a they have a sai which sometimes they hold like a like a regular sai, and sometimes they just like throw it at somebody, <laughs> which. If you ever wondered why Raphael from Ninja Turtles does that, I right. guess now you know. Yeah. Anything um, can be a projectile if you try hard enough. Right? So so yeah, and that's like a that's definitely a standard of ninja fiction, like ninja throwing various objects at you in an improbably deadly way, like a like a garden trowel or <laughs> I don't know, a frog. 
Speaking of ninja, I know a lot of our listeners are aware that the popular expression of ninja is really historically inaccurate. And the Nagoro clan here seems like it's probably more realistic. You know, if they are considered the ninja of the story, they're actually just commoners who were going about uh, sort of like a guerrilla war. Oh, and and it's actually the other way around. The, uh, the commoner thing, that's actually the myth. Oh, okay. Uh, so there's this there's this controversy about whether ninja exist, and I, I think that we can probably like as a base level, we can probably all like, all agree that in 150 years of war, it would have been completely improbable for there to have been no spies who ever had the idea of training other spies. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of information about ninja that we don't have because they concealed it. But what we what we know of ninja points to the existence of sustained military intelligence traditions that existed within the samurai class. Um, There were probably farmers who did spying. There were certainly farmers who got drafted into the military and ended up passing themselves off as basically samurai. But generally speaking, what we... What we know about real ninja points to the idea that they were members of the samurai class who often disguised themselves as peasants, farmers, monks, literally anybody and everything. So it was like black ops work or something. Yeah, they were, they were, um, I guess more like a formal military intelligence outfit. Um, although there were certainly ninja who hired themselves out to, uh, to, different like highest bidders it's also true that there were certain samurai who actually did some farming on their own they're called uh jizamurai um i translate that as gentry when i get the opportunity but they were they were minor samurai who had to do their own farming and whose lifestyles were often closer to peasants who had a sword in the house than they were to like the the samurai who were um, the real movers and shakers of the uh, Warring States period. And a lot of, uh, so the Iga province, which is where a lot of G-Samurai banded together into the Iga Provincial League, uh, is associated with these military intelligence traditions. So it might, uh, that might have been one of the reasons that this myth of like farmer ninja uh, came up. They were in fact samurai but they were poor enough that they had to do a lot of their own dirty work there's also an individual human uh named stephen k hayes who was a former member of the martial art that i do and then kind of split with us who really 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 liked this narrative of like the impoverished ninja who were forced to use straight swords ninja didn't use straight swords and he's also personally responsible for spreading a lot of ninja misinformation gotcha these Nagoro clan folks then i suppose there were a few lines from them about how they were going to reclaim their ancestral homeland so would they be more accurately fit into that sort of gentry class that you were describing yeah, I think I think in the movie the way that they're represented is as former a, a former warrior tradition who were forced to become poor samurai, uh poor farmers. And then the the particular image of them seems to borrow a lot of imagery from like the Ruchuan Islands, um where karate came from and that's why they have like sai and kama as weapons. In pop culture, we often see ninja with weapons that are actually more associated with karate for a whole bunch of other complicated his complicated reasons. But this movie may be one of them. Hmm. Um, I actually looked up, so I, I saw Nagoro, and I was like, "That doesn't. That's nothing I've heard of. I've never heard that name before." And I went and I looked it up, and um, the only Nagoro 
clan that I could find were uh, a warrior monk order uh, based out of a temple in Key Province. And the Stephen Turnbull book, Japanese Warrior Monks by Osprey Publishing, talks about them. They weren't really ninja or even particularly stealthy. They were just big, strong monks who had a lot of guns and glaives. Sometimes that's all it takes, you know? Yeah. I want to see that movie. I mean, that sounds... Right? That sounds cool <laughs> yeah. as heck. Yeah, they were they were super badass, and they believed that if as soon as they died, they would go to, like, Buddhist heaven? Mm-hmm. Maybe? Uh, it, it's complicated. So there's some Witness Me vibes going on, too? Uh, they Actually, they practiced uh, Shingon Buddhism, which is the weirdest and coolest form of Japanese Buddhism. <laughs> Have you ever seen, like, anime or anything like that where ninja are doing... Uh, funny hand symbols mm-hmm. that actually are they doing mudra yeah yeah they're they're mudras they come originally from india and then they were transmitted to japan uh through various buddhist sources but uh shingon buddhism which is this form of esoteric buddhism which is really into like standing on mountains wearing not enough clothes and thinking about numbers yeah they they were they were largely responsible for the uh the weird ninja hand symbols because they shared a lot of territory with the um uh the Iga provincial league and the uh the rangers or ninja who we think of as the uh the Iga school of ninja very cool so bending back because the 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 ninja in the movie plays sort of like a minor a pretty minor role so we've got the main conflict between the two princes. Yes. Um, is that a historical conflict or was it sort of invented for the movie? That was a real historical conflict. I don't know how much the the ableism in the movie mm-hmm. um, played into it, but there was there was definitely a conflict between Iemitsu and Tadanaga. Iemitsu was the older uh, was the older sibling. Tadanaga was the younger one. Tadanaga was his parents' favorite. And so after his dad's death, there was a conflict and Iemitsu did in fact order Tadanaga to commit seppuku, hmm. which would have been a relatively like extreme and intense thing for them to do. But from like a, from a political perspective, if Iemitsu were concerned with the staying power of his line, um, the presence of another brother um, who could possibly assert uh, like primogeniture mm-hmm. over Yamitsu's children mm-hmm. um like that was a that was a real threat and that was the kind of thing that did cause wars sure in the past couple centuries so so you're saying like if Tadanaga had sons or whatever and maybe Yamitsu didn't or they they died yeah. or whatever then Tadanaga could have a claim on the on the shogunate through uh his children if he were to stay alive right exactly easier to just kill your brother make sure it doesn't happen Much easier to have your brother kill himself that too. So that conflict was real. the The portrayal of Tada of Yamitsu and Tadanaga in the in this movie, where Tadanaga is um, this sexy, elegant guy, and then Yamitsu um, in, in the movie he has a he has a, a big birthmark on his mm-hmm. face, and is just he's not really ugly. He's just kind of average looking, but everyone plays up how supposedly hideous he is in the movie. <laughs> It's just it's not, just because like he's a six and everyone around him's a, you know a nine. And yeah, so it's, yeah. It's kind of throwing off the scale. The movie doesn't exactly uh, it doesn't exactly deconstruct that. <laughs> <laughs> it's more so, of like a you know it brings it up and then it kind of just sits there. 
is it rooted in sort of ableist notion of that he is inferior because of his his birthmark and his stammer and that says something about his character because it feels like he he is shown to be just sort of a tool of yagi munanori I think that that seems to be the implication. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think like we could charitably read it as like, oh, people, uh, people treat him poorly because of um, these disabilities. And uh, therefore he, man, I don't know, like the movie, but the movie doesn't really go into any of that stuff. No, it doesn't. It's just like, this guy is ugly and talks funny and therefore it's okay not to think he can be Shogun. Yeah. I mean, it's not really the heart. The heart of it is that it's his by traditional right but his parents wanted his younger more popular brother and then a bunch of other people want just to screw this all up so that the shogunate can lose power and the the central driving force as you highlight is that yagyu munonori wants his like favorite student uh to end up in charge Mm. implication being so that yagyu munonori um, as the real power behind the throne can be the real one in charge. Mm-hmm. This movie is really focused on the interpersonal drama between all of the different characters. And it's a movie where characters use violence to get what they want. And these things are really familiar to us as fans of Wuxia. But this is not a Wuxia movie. And we had talked about doing an introduction to Chanbara here on the show. So what is it about this movie that made you pick it as a good introduction to the genre? Uh, well, I mean, I think the the main influence was the fact that I really wanted to see it and I hadn't yet. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so most of the Chanbara that I'd seen um, was Kurosawa Akira's work, which has a lot of influences from uh, Westerns and Shakespeare, as well as from uh, Japanese narratives and historical narratives. So I, I knew I was interested in this movie for a couple of reasons. First of all, because it has conspiracy in the title. Um, <laughs> and one of my favorite things about Japanese history and fiction is the importance of intrigue and skullduggery and betrayal. It's a lot about really morally gray or uh, morally turpitudinous people uh, screwing each other over. And that was, I think, a a major defining element of the Japanese Warring States period. Tokugawa Ieyasu, the first Tokugawa shogun, was only able to win the Battle of Sekigahara and unify Japan because he convinced most of the enemy army to betray their side midway through the battle <laughs> so <laughs> there was wild. just this yeah like just imagine like you show up at the battle you have the numerical advantage you're fighting this upstart and then just half your team just turns on you midway through the battle and that was itself uh the end of a really really long series of backstabbings following other backstabbings following other backstabbings so given that uh western perceptions of samurai often Uh, kind of overplay like the honor and morally upright like lawful good or lawful neutral Mm -hmm. uh influences i definitely wanted to see something that involved more like mustache twirling oh sure yeah and the people in this movie were every bit as uh calculating and self-interested as characters on game of thrones or something it's not like it's not like this is a place where loyalty and honor are absolute values it, it does make the real human ties the ties of loyalty and love uh glow even brighter 
Um, like the fact that, so Yagyu Munonori, for all of his scheming desire for power in this film, does seem to deeply and genuinely love Prince Iemitsu. Mm-hmm. And I, there was a, there's a scene in the beginning where it's, it's Yagyu and, uh, two of the people who, um, who actually did the poisoning mm-hmm. and they're meeting Yamitsu and the, the way that Yagyu gets the other two to admit what they did is Yamitsu comes in and Yagyu's like, I poisoned your dad. Mm-hmm. I was the one who did it. I'm Spartacus. Mm-hmm. and so he's sitting there and he's fully he he seems completely willing to let Yamitsu chop him in half for this crime and then only because he's able to like jump into danger himself the other two are like no we can't let you die for this we were the ones who did it let's all have a conspiracy and betray everybody else yeah yeah and it was really interesting in that scene to see the three of them band together and put the pressure on prince Iamitsu to make yes. that choice. It was it was really coercive. <laughs> as soon yeah. as that happened, I was like, wow, this is not all that yeah. functional of a court. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these people They're going to get hard. stuff done, but they're going to tear each other apart doing it. Well, you could see uh, Yagyu like peeling away Iemitsu's power. You know, he comes in and he has all of the authority because he's the prince. And then as he gets sort of concession after concession, he doesn't kill Yagyu. Right. And then he offers up all three of them to be killed, like right after they hear, hear the plan. Right. And then he's like, oh, well, now I have to kill these three people. And <laughs> that seems like a lot of work. It's a lot mm-hmm. of, yeah. And it's like, well, I think they clearly care about me being shogun so like maybe i should listen to them and it's that part was really fascinating seeing seeing that level and that's not a that kind of calculation is not something that we normally see in like a wuxia movie yeah i think because it's not dealing with the sort of like upper level court drama that we normally see it's there's a lot of like class interplay uh and this there was some of that in this but it was much sort of higher level. Yeah. Yeah, that was something that Eric and I were talking about in terms of the differences between this movie and Wuxia. We see both the courtly life and the common life in a lot of the Wuxia film that we consume. But in Wuxia, it seems like the court is often a background character or ineffective or what have you. And the focus is much more on the lives of those common class of people, even if they're super prestigious and successful. Whereas in this movie, every single thing flows from that courtly interaction. That's definitely a, a reflection of of that like conservative tendency in like samurai society. All of the power and all of the decisions made in the Warring States period, with a couple with a couple of glaring exceptions, which actually kind of show up in this movie, all of the power flowed from the uh, from the military nobility, um, or in earlier periods from like the the courtly nonviolent nobility, um, who we see a little bit in this movie. Should we, should we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. You were talking about this before we started recording, and I really want to hear more about it. So most of the characters in the movie are uh, are samurai nobility, 
Um, they descended from these provincial warrior clans who got to be important because they were good at shooting people with arrows. But back in uh, like the Heian era, like the era that gave us like the Tale of Genji and the Pillow Book, all of the power was not with the Shogun, with this uh, military generalissimo, uh, but with the Emperor of Japan, um, who is descended from the gods. And the Emperor is based in originally in Nara, then Kyoto. And the Emperor had this imperial court of these nobles who were, you know, they were the 1% of the 1%. They were the most courtly, rich, refined, overeducated, and graceful and elegant people. And in this movie, we see that a little bit because each of the the two prospective shoguns is vying for the favor of the imperial court. And the, the emperor doesn't have any actual power but as a figurehead, uh, he's really important. So they both want to get the emperor's favor. But you never actually see the emperor in this movie because the emperor is not very important. I don't even know if he was an adult during this time period. But um, what you do see is all of these nobles who surround the emperor. In the movie, they're portrayed as uh, they're still very calculating and uh, clever and uh, dedicated to pitting the two shoguns against one another. So neither of them gets powerful enough. But they they talk a lot about they talk a lot about poetry and refinement. Um, they they speak in this very uh, circumspect way, never really directly talking about what they mean. Um, in a way that we might be familiar with from from wuxia fiction, they represent they represent a style of nobility that was in power a long, long time ago before the rise of the samurai. They cry a lot. Everybody cries a lot because it's Japanese fiction. Everyone's got to cry. But unlike the samurai who are uh, who cry about like forthright things like their friend dying, the imperial nobles shed these crocodile tears uh, in order to to support their uh their calculating ends one of the imperial nobles turns out actually to be a badass yeah and everyone's really surprised because it's this dude in this elaborate courtly makeup with this ridiculous expensive outfit but unlike most of the the fighters in this movie who fight either with karate weapons or with a katana this guy has a touch he has the uh the older style of sword that was popular um earlier in the warring states period which is it's bigger and heavier and it's it's wielded one-handed. It's uh, a backup weapon for a, a guy who expects to ride around on a horse most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whereas like a katana is maybe more equivalent to an arming sword or something. The yeah. touch is much more equivalent to a long sword or a two-handed sword or something. Yeah, exactly. And then the uh, the samurai who we see doing most of the fighting are people who would have had um, a firearm uh, or a spear as their main weapon, and then the katana would have been their backup. Speaking about firearms really quick, it was a fun bit of trivia for me to find out that the time period for the story is a year before the setting for the Three Musketeers novel, and all oh, the yeah. other media as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's pretty cool to think about the both cultural and technological similarities between these two places. Uh, the use of muskets, the extreme decadence of the noble court, all of these things are common threads, even though the cultures themselves are quite different. Yes, definitely. And um, we didn't see as much, uh, you know, one of the coolest things about uh, Three Musketeers is that the um, the arch-villain is Cardinal Richelieu, who's a religious figure. Mm-hmm. I would have liked to see more uh, scheming warrior monks, that, such as we might be familiar with from Wuxia again. Mm-hmm. Um, 
There's there's one guy who disguises himself as a warrior monk in this movie, but he didn't get to be on Was screen. Was this the rival of your Lord Yagyu? Yes. Okay. That guy came from uh, the fencing style that Yagyu Shinkage Ryu descended from. Mm. Yeah. So he's sort of the progenitor style, trying yes. to prove that it's just as good as this new upstart. Yes. Very cool. And he dies in the most confusing way. <laughs> it was great. Movie, I loved it. Yeah the, yeah. the movie went full art house for like a whole five seconds. <laughs> yeah. Which is, and, and that's like a, I think that that's actually a, I mean, it's an exaggerated version, but it is, that is kind of a real thing in, uh, in Yagyu Shinkage style. There's this idea uh, in Yagyu Shinkage Ryu that if your enemy has their mind fixed on something, that's that's a failing of theirs especially in a buddhist sense where you're not supposed to have these attachments and so the way to get the drop on them is to let them have whatever it is that their mind is attached to and then attack them laterally in some way that they didn't even think about because they're focused on the idea of like cutting in a certain way or getting a certain kind of victory see i'm glad to hear you say that because we have talked about the ways that violence communicates narrative in wuxia and yes. what we what I noticed about Lord Yagyu throughout this whole movie is that he's a very devious and calculating kind of person and he can he can slowly inevitably turn situations to his advantage but when he fights he's it's usually just one stroke and that's the end of the fight which yeah. struck me as very different but hearing that the fighting style is about coming at people laterally that connects the narrative and the violence a little closer i think i actually just randomly opened to it in this book um under the the heading returning the mind in this book by yagyu Munenori, it says the frame of mind indicated with this phrase is if you strike with your sword and think i've struck the mind that thinks i've struck will stop right there just as it is because your mind does not return from the place you struck you will be distracted struck by the second blow of your opponent and your initiative will be brought to nothing with your opponent's second blow you will be defeated and that's pretty much exactly how the final duel between the guy dressed as a monk i forget his name and mm. and yagyu mununori works out the uh, you see from the other guy's perspective he sees himself killing yagyu mununori and then there's a sort of uh, then there's a, a smash cut to what's actually happening, and either he or Yagyu Munonori has actually just cut a statue in half. Yeah. And then you see that he is dying from a from Yagyu Munonori's strike to his head. It's a wild duel, and it kind of comes out of nowhere because there's a will they won't they vibe through the whole movie, and then the character whose name is Oga Sawara uh, Genshinsai. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He uh, he sort of comes out of nowhere. We think he's maybe gone for the rest of the time, and then they show up, and it's like, okay, well, let's get this out of the way, and then it's, it's out of <laughs> well, the way. Well, I'm very glad quickly. they bring him back because they demonstrate his scale earlier in the movie, uh-huh. in that sort of non-conflict oh. with with Yagyu Munonori, where Munonori refuses to fight him. Oh yeah, he just shows up in Munonori's quarters, right? And tries to challenge him, and Munonori won't take the challenge, and then uh, Yagyu Jubei tries to get the drop on him and that's when he gets his eye cut mm-hmm. and yeah. ha- transforms into badass eye patch jubei yes uh, for the rest <laughs> of the movie yeah. um but yeah so it would have been a waste to not have him come back at all after we have seen him demonstrate a scale yeah yes. and 
that was something that we've identified often in Wuxia. There are folks who are listeners who have very compelling points about why scale maybe doesn't matter as much as we've said, but we're always kind of looking out for evidence in that direction, that there are scales that are sort of inherent to the training or personality of the characters and they're pitted against each other and higher scales are almost always guaranteed to win. And we get a sense for skill or power level or something in this movie, but it seemed to me that it's more reliably tied to somebody's station because this is a movie that's so much more about intrigue. Is there a notion of scale in wider Chambara film or is it mostly tied to your position in society or how does that work? When you say scale, uh, you mean the idea that like uh, fighters exist on these relatively fixed tiers and moving between tiers is a pretty epic act. The The narrative beat that you could look at or beats that you could look at is the protagonist fights the antagonist and loses the protagonist goes off and trains the protagonist comes back and then beats beats the antagonist because he's trained and and increased his scale in that way in kurosawa films it's it's not a, a it's not a really huge part of it so for example one of the i think one of the most representative kurosawa films is ron I would say Ron is one of the most uh, representative Kurosawa films, but in uh, Kagemusha, Shadow Warrior, it starts with the death of Takeda Shingen, uh, another much, uh, much mythologized, mysterious death. And Takeda Shingen dies when a completely random uh, musketeer gets a lucky shot on him and kills him. And there's a there's a, a word for that in Japanese, uh, which is Gekokujo. And Gekokujo means the low overcoming the high. And it was considered to be one of the hallmarks, one of the most important dynamics of the uh, Warring States period. That this was uh, this was able to happen. But I would say that the the characters of the Yagyu clan and their particular uh, their particular association with the pinnacle of swordsmanship brings those ideas of scale into play in a way that they might not be present in a lot of in a lot of other movies in yojimbo and in senjuro for example mifune toshiro plays this like really badass um uh really badass samurai and he's able to you know kick an entire town's ass but in the end of yojimbo the the main threat to him is that uh he's fighting back fighting against this like uh minor league mafia and one of the tough guys from that minor league mafia shows up with a revolver so there is a sense of scale in that. So this guy is a total badass, but he still can't beat a gangster with a revolver until he comes up with this like really this really clever way to like to get him with a knife before he can fire his first shot. So yeah, I'd say it's not as big a deal, um, but the presence of uh, the Yagyu clan uh, brings it into play. Okay. That's that's interesting. Well, we may have to keep exploring some Chanbara and see kind of the differences between what we watched and and maybe something something else. That would you say that this one Yagyu conspiracy is sort of less representative of the genre overall in that one aspect? I'm not sure. Okay, I I feel I feel like I would need to watch more Chanbara as well. Uh, okay. to know for sure. No problem. You talked about how they kind of mixed time periods. You know, we had some sort of Heian style nobles in with the the, the later period of, of what's going on after the the warring states. Yes. Um, and we see a little bit of like light body technique and sort of wrapping historically accurate setting versus fantasy versus magic 
you know, mm-hmm. or at least um, sort of exceptional skills like what we see. You know, we see somebody make a, a backwards leap up 12 feet. That all seems right. sort of like kind of wrapped up. But that was uh, that was Yagyu's daughter, right? Oh, sure. So she's got that extra level. Because she's, yeah, she's a Yagyu and she has martial skills and maybe ninja teachers somewhere. But in terms of sort of like history versus fantasy in the samurai, do they tend to be rooted in, I don't know how to say this because I know any sort of, historical representation is wrong um mm-hmm. but are they more rooted in in that than sort of a we see a lot of spaces that's in wuxia that sort of seem to exist in uh, almost like a dreamlike separate space yeah and like so many wuxia stories don't uh, they aren't explicitly tied to historical events they might reference a historical period but they they can be very far departed from the reality of what happened. Whereas the movie that we saw felt much more grounded in reality. I would say that the, the kinds of uh, the kinds of supernatural material, which tend to come up, I think they have a very different tone. You know, Wuxia has this adjacent genre, Shensha, which is the, what gives us stuff like journey to the West and creation of the gods, where everybody and their mother has ridiculous superpowers. Mm Mm-hmm. So, and that's considered to be part of like the basic fabric of what's going on. We're just going to like, we're going to fight for an entire week and that's going to be totally normal. And it's going to take up half a page of a book. In a lot of the Chanbara that I've seen, the supernatural stuff is more, I don't know, you might say spoopy. Sure. Um, So I think a a good example is uh, the aforementioned, the Macbeth adaptation, Mm -hmm. which features Mifune and Yamada. Uh, Instead of the, the three witches from Macbeth, there is this creepy ghost witch lady in the forest who gives Macbeth some some weird pronunciations and then just kind of disappears. But then uh, later on, uh, when the when the ghost of Banquo shows up, it's mostly like they don't even really show him for the most part. It's mostly accomplished through Mifune being really good at acting. So the tone is more like sort of spooky and mysterious, and I'd say that that's. That's true as well of some of the supernatural abilities that we see in this one. Um, when someone's able to like throw a sigh, uh, you know, halfway across a field and hit a ninja that no one else could see, or when someone's able to jump all the way to a roof or cut someone who seemed in, who was invisible in the next room over, um, it's it's more this moment of like numinous, like mysterious weirdness. If the attitude towards supernatural uh phenomena in wuxia is uh kind of romantic then the chanbara attitude towards the supernatural is more gothic that's a cool distinction thanks for uh going over the kind of broad stroke differences between chanbara and wuxia with us should we move on to at the table and chat about games that might represent this stuff well before we hop into that i just want to get your take uh mendez since since you're here and you have a wealth of sort of historical knowledge that you can help us pass on i know that people are occasionally uncomfortable playing in historical settings because they feel like they don't do them they're afraid to do them wrong yes so something like this with yagyu clan conspiracy where there's clearly some liberties being taken, but it still feels very serious and very historical. But actually, like bringing that to the table can be a challenge. Do you have any sort of insight on on what people can do to play within those worlds and actually play rather yes. than feel restricted? 
Yes, definitely. So I wrote a whole article on this. It's called Best Practices for Historical Gaming. And I just post, pasted it into the outline. So you can click that link after the podcast and read my long form thoughts on this. But so the, the most important first step when you're approaching history and then, and I think this actually applies to anything with like a really elaborate canon for one reason or mm. another. Like if you tried to get into Exalted or Vampire right now, there's all of this meta plot and all of this background and stuff. And at least one person at your table knows all of it for some reason. And mm -hmm. a lot of other people are probably playing catch up. So that situation is not that different. Although like the stakes of getting something historically wrong versus getting something in like the exalted lore wrong are a little bit different. But I think the most important thing is for everybody to go in with an attitude of being okay with being wrong, being okay with being corrected and being okay with iterating on what you're doing in order to change it. This is not to say that people should be correcting each other left and right, even in a historical game. I don't think that that's necessarily... I don't think that that's necessary even when you're playing a historical game. But I think that going in with that attitude of it's okay to be wrong and it's okay to improve on mistakes that we've made is one of the most important uh, first steps. And that's like, that's something that you have to do emotionally. You have to like make yourself okay with the physical sensation that comes over you when you get something wrong or when someone calls you on something. Again, doesn't mean we should be calling each other on things all the time at the table. But if you're not afraid of that moment, should it arrive, then this whole proposition becomes easier. It reminds me of, you know, I like to introduce safety tools or content tools to people. Uh, I usually start with Script Change by uh, Brie Bo Sheldon. And I like to introduce it to people by pointing out that retcons happen all the time in gaming. You know, the game master or somebody else forgot a detail. You get two minutes into a scene and then you're like, wait, 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 there's something else that's going on. We got to jump back and do that anyway. There's just a, a particular anxiety that's tied up with doing something that might be hurtful to somebody else. And I love what you're saying about sort of embracing that fear. And that is the way to get over it eventually. You have to you have to get comfortable with making those mistakes and for correcting and moving yeah. on. Uh, and it happens at a small scale. We just have to get more comfortable about doing it for things that we perceive to be a lot more important. Yes. So the fear that I have about people getting things wrong at the table is never just that someone's going to get something wrong. I can always be like, oh, actually, it's like this. And if they're willing to listen, then great. Problem solved. The thing that I'm afraid of is that they're going to say something that makes me or somebody else uncomfortable, and then they're going to... If it actually matters to me enough that I do want to correct them, which is actually not most of the time, then what I'm afraid of is that they'll push back against it. Yeah, so you brought up uh, content tools and safety tools. Can I tell you a story about the very first X card? Of course. Oh. I was there when the very first X card was created. And it was me, and I was at John Stavropoulos' house, and... We were, I was playing a game with our friend Dave and our friend Todd, and Dave um, has really, really particular preferences about what he does and doesn't like in games from like a genre perspective and a tone perspective. Um, but very often, like we'd play a game and then we'd be like, how'd you like that, Dave? And he'd be like, it was great, except there was this one thing that kept happening the whole time, and that really ruined the tone for me. And we'd be like, 
well, damn, Dave, why didn't you say anything? And he'd be like, I don't know. So one day, John designed this game that involved a lot of index cards, and he drew an X on one of the index cards. And as he was explaining the game, he said, hey, Dave, so if one of those things happens that, that you don't like, just tap the card and we won't do it. And Dave didn't actually use the card, but he was a lot more open about like expressing his content preferences after that. And that was the first X card. And it was actually used uh, to moderate uh, tone and content mm. uh, rather than um, for the safety aspect, which was added a little bit later. So yeah, um, I think that using uh, using those safety mechanisms to modulate stuff like historical accuracy, or conversely, to like get rid of historical accuracy if there's too much of it. If I go- if I start going into like the details of how to reload a matchlock musket, and you're like, I, I really, I'm sorry, I really don't care. Can we just move on to the part where people get shot? Like that is a totally weapon speed. Get out yep, of here. <laughs> that is a totally legit use of like fast forward on the fast forward on script change. And and that's one of the reasons why I love that tool in particular because it's so applicable to just an exactly perfect role-playing experience like that the archetypal example where nothing super offensive happens it's still like well you're gonna need this for something so i think that's really really important i think that if you're the conversely if you're the person who does know everything about history then i think it's on you to correct people as little as possible so and i think that this is this is a lot of the anxiety that people have about playing historical games it's not like that they're going to violate some absolute rule that exists out in space somewhere it's that a particular person is going to make their life hell because they got the details of how to reload a musket wrong. Right. They're they're wandering into a minefield filled with embarrassment and defensiveness mines. Right. That and, that are that are gonna go off at any particular time whenever they say something. Right. And yeah. I and I think that same sort of thing happens with Star Wars mm-hmm. games. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think if you're that person then then it's on you to like come up with a creative way to explain why Mandalorians took off their helmets in the past, but now they don't. <laughs> and uh yeah orthodox versus you know reform mandalorians <laughs> so so for example here's one thing that i do if i if i feel the overwhelming need to correct someone but i don't want to do it by saying well actually if someone introduces an idea um that i that i want to present an alternate perspective on then instead of correcting them i will find an opportunity later on to introduce a different thing into the game which is closer to my vision of things so in the moment i tell myself i'm going to give myself permission not to correct someone right now i feel this overwhelming desire to do it but i'm going to tell myself i i am allowed to do this later and then i'll tell myself later on so that this person has introduced a rakshasa with a tiger head and i i think that that's like inaccurate or offensive and i and so I, I want something else. So instead of saying, hey, I, I think that you need to change your Rakshasa with a tiger head. Instead, later on, I'll say, I'll introduce a Rakshasa character somewhere later on who just has a regular demon face and big teeth. And that later on <laughs> moment may never come. And that's mm-hmm. probably fine. If like if it's something that's like actually offensive, then I might say like, hey, just so you know, if you ever play a game that's like, really into indian myth you might not want to introduce a tiger face rakshasa because that's from a weird american tv show and if it's actually that important then i can say so probably after the game or if i feel like i have the relationship with the table where like i can change that now then yeah i'm going to use a i'm going to use a safety mechanism because that's that's what they're for but 
allowing myself to do it later and allowing myself to do it by introducing something that presents a different uh, perspective is a a softer way to do that. That was exactly what I was hoping for when I pitched that question to you. So thanks so much. And and I I encourage everyone to, uh, we will post that link in the show notes and you should definitely check that out. You've given us this, this sort of wealth of information about the samurai genre and the historical context of the movie, right? But you've been using all of that to build your own game, Thousand Arrows. Yes. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? And then we can kind of pitch you some questions about it. Yeah, sure. Thousand Arrows is a game that I'm working on with uh, Brendan Taylor from Galileo Games as editor. And it is a long, long, long time ago. It started out as a uh, an Apocalypse World hack that Brendan came up with to do Legend of the Five Rings. And then he brought me on and I said, hey, you know what? would be really cool if this game had 100% less Legend of the Five Rings. And then Brennan was like, yeah, I was thinking that too. <laughs> you can still you can still do, use it to do Legend of the Five Rings, as I now know, because I've worked on Legend of the Five Rings. But the game focuses on... Uh, I'm not really going to say the historical Japanese Warring States period, because as soon as the game starts, that's it for history. It's a version of the Japanese Warring States period that draws from Japanese sources and Japanese fiction um, in its perspective. I wanted to depict Japan 1467 to 1615 or whatever, the way the way that Japanese fiction tended to depict it, as opposed to the depictions in the depictions of samurai that we see most commonly in Western facing media, um, which are either influenced by the like mid to late Edo period that like starts with um, where Yagyu clan conspiracy ends or um, they're influenced by like Western media or Western ideas that end up getting reskinned with samurai. Sure. Like um, Clavel Shogun or yeah, exactly. something like that. Okay. Right. Um, or even movies like uh, Yojimbo and Sanjuro, which are essentially mm-hmm. Westerns that... Recast, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then were recast as Westerns. So the player characters in Thousand Arrows are the movers and shakers of the Japanese Warring States period. Every character has um, like 100 troops or so that are following them around at all times. They are the lords and generals and Buddhist abbots and like ninja spy masters who make all the difference in the Warring States period. You are high-powered people. And even if even if you're playing as the farmer, even if you're playing as like a, a knight-errant ronin, um, you're going to be the you're going to be an important farmer. You're going to be an important knight errant. There's a lot of his of supernatural stuff there, but I tried to focus on the supernatural and religious phenomena which Japanese people in the Warring States period actually believed in, as opposed to like D and D stuff which you see in a lot of samurai games. Mm-hmm. So you could play as, for example, a fox spirit or a tengu, like a a, a crow demon who likes fencing. Or uh, a spiritist who uh, who summons and channels spirits because you're a you're a member of the Shinto clergy or something like that. So you can, in addition to playing sort of the precursors to the people that we saw in the movie today, yes, uh, you could also play spirits and and other sort of supernatural things. 
Yes. Very cool. And there's uh there's at least one I have at least one scenario where you can where you play as Yagyu Munonori. Oh cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, the, the scenario <laughs> I'm actually, assuming the more pretentious incarnation of history yes. than uh, we see in this yes. movie. Uh he's a he's a little bit more conventional, but still very loyal to the Tokugawa shogunate. So the the character types in that game, um so in a lot of Apocalypse World games, you pick one playbook and build your character based on that. Um in Thousand Arrows you actually pick two. Um, there's a there's a role playbook and an allegiance playbook. The role is like your job in feudal Japanese society, and the allegiance is what team you play for. The roles include different, uh, various different kinds of uh, of samurai. There's a courtier, a retainer, and a knight, which emphasize the like courtly scheming politics. Uh, loyalty and violent parts of being a samurai. There's warrior monks, there are secret agents, there's a farmer. We have artisan, pirate, and uh, merchant playbooks now. And then uh, your allegiance, which you pair with that, is whichever whichever team you play for that's like most important to your uh, character's origin. So that could be a samurai clan, that could be a religion, you could be a secret agent who works for the Takeda or the Yagyu clan, you could be, or you could work for the Nichiren School of Buddhism or for the Catholic Church. There's also uh, provincial leagues, like the aforementioned, the Iga Provincial League of like minor farmers, farmer samurai banding together. Or you can, if you want to play on hard mode, you can be a Ronin. Maybe you could explain to us like why that's hard mode. Is it because you, you don't have any backup and ties to other yeah. people? Is it because you don't have this group of 100 soldiers? Yeah. So one thing that I think we learned in um, Yagyu Clan Conspiracy is it's really hard to be a Ronin. Yeah, it's it's, it's not not good for your life expectancy. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's like they get romanticized in uh, mm-hmm. you know shows like Samurai Champloo, but we should remember that in Samurai Champloo the main characters were really poor and struggling the whole time. So Ronin or masterless samurai were among the most despised people in all of feudal Japan because. They had all of the violent tendencies and often entitlement of samurai without any of the uh, noblesse oblige. And a samurai who had no master was generally considered to have uh, to to be that way because of some deep set personal failing, as opposed to you know because there was a lot of death in the feudal Japanese era. Ronin often uh, in their struggle to like make enough money to make ends meet, they would end up hiring themselves out to the highest to the highest bidder, or working as bandits or uh, you know common thugs, that kind of thing. Uh, that's definitely reflected in Thousand Arrows. If you're a Ronin, um, you have a lot more flexibility in some ways than some other character types, but you don't have like the military machine of an entire samurai clan uh, backing you up. You don't have, like, a monastery in every province that you can go to and expect, you know, food and shelter and heavily armed monks to stand between you and danger. It's just you, and you're going to get, like, easily manipulated and kicked around. Sounds fun. Cut off from all your resources. Very cool. So one of the things that we as designers have been really noodling between the two of us is the ways that violence can be spurred by and spur in turn the narrative going on at the table. And I had put a call out on some social media spaces a couple of weeks ago about 
games that were examples of this, and you mentioned that Thousand Arrows has that potential. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Thousand Arrows, uh, when it's working as intended, alternates between uh, scenes of battlefield violence and scenes of uh, passion, drama, and intrigue. It expresses that, uh, you know, that Carl von Clausewitz quote about war being the continuation of politics by other means. When you have violent things going on, the GM's job is to think about when those violent moments end, what is the quickest way to spur the narrative towards a different kind of thing going on? So, you know, when that moment comes, when the when the fight is decided, what are all of the possible ways that this could spur a scene of like that expresses some personal drama, that expresses politics, that brings in character types who aren't good at this kind of fighting that's going on right now. So a lot of the GM's roles and agenda are are pushing towards those outcomes. Um, the, a lot of the GM's moves that um, that happen when you know someone fails a role or when you're not sure what to do take what's going on right now and they shift the context. If it's within violence, that might be from the strategic scale to the tactical scale or the tactical scale to the political scale, something like that. But in addition, uh, I think it's also really important uh, to use the GM move to make the characters need each other. If I'm doing something violent and I fail a role, which is going to happen eventually, the GM should be thinking about not just a result which changes the avenue of the conflict, but a result which changes the avenue of the conflict to something else where you need someone else. So the the example that I that I wrote into the um, into the GM description of reactions is: so you're a Chinese pirate, you're trying to cross Issei Bay to get to your beloved who's embattled on the other coast, and you're negotiating with the local admiral. Uh, you roll to show him how you feel. That's the the main the main social move in Thousand Arrows is show them how you feel. And in order to get someone to do something else or pay attention to you, you have to express a, an overwhelming outburst of emotion, like we often saw in Yagyu Clan Conspiracy, where people are like crying over people who died or passionately expressing themselves about like some romantic or social conflict or something like that. You, you got to express the emotion. But suppose I, I you roll for that and uh, and you fail. There's a couple of different kinds of responses that the GM can come with. Um, the GM might say, okay, look, uh, if you can't afford the customary fee to, uh, to, cross, the, to cross the bay without uh, my pirates blowing you up, uh, maybe you can help me out another way. Uh, my son is single. He's quite handsome, if I do say so myself. Let me send him along with you to like, help you navigate the choppy waters of the bay. And uh, I think you might enjoy each other's company. That's the, so that's the mm-hmm. soft version. The hard version, if I want things to get real, really fast, the Admiral says, as knowledgeable as you are about naval matters, I'm shocked you didn't know it's standard practice to pay to cross the bay and not get sunk to the bottom of the sea. But your skills are something I need in my employ, so you can cross if you agree to marry my son and join your pirate fleet to my navy. All right. So there's some framing stuff at work there in terms of whether this is going to be more oblique or more direct. And it takes a conflict that was in that was in one realm having to do with like negotiating and money and the comparative power of like different kinds of ships and then turns it into a thing that suddenly has romance and feelings and politics, but in a different kind uh, of a different kind involved. So it sounds like it's going to be pretty fraught with uh, with both drama and melodrama. Mm-hmm. In a way that I think might be familiar to 
uh, to our listeners and and what they what they crave in their in their wuxia. But it sounds like they're also going to be getting out of this out of the the samurai stories that they're telling in Thousand Arrows. Definitely. We, in terms of like the the violence that is going to happen in Thousand Arrows, I'm assuming there's violence in it. It has arrows in the title. Yes. Violence in games, just like violence in the media that we watch communicates something is there a like in apocalypse world right that there is a that there's a sentiment that violence is how you get what you want but you will always pay for it Mm -hmm. Uh, and in wuxia we see that violence is a way of communicating both your character's internal qualities and their desires out into the world do we see something similar like that in thousand arrows yes i'd say that in terms of violence having meaning i've seen people play thousand arrows and get really into just violence qua violence um Mm -hmm. they're they're really into like the details of like feudal japanese martial arts or medieval uh battlefield tactics or something like that and people get people get really really into that especially children um (laughs) sure yeah i um, every now and then, like a an eight year old signs up to play Thousand Arrows. Very often, that eight year old just really, really just wants to do violence for two hours, and the game supports that. Kids are really terrible. Well, <laughs> um, and the katanas make that cool noise. They make that shping noise. They do. They definitely do. Um, and so it is possible to play Thousand Arrows just that way. But the the whole GM apparatus and the whole like narrative structure of the game push violence towards being political and or passionate, ideally both. Samurai narratives, as as I understand them, like based on like the stuff that I read in grad school, like the Tale of the Heike, like all of the most important moments in like the Tale of the Heike, which is a, a late Heian era samurai narrative, or I, I guess like warrior narrative. People weren't really calling them samurai quite yet. All of the most important moments are there's a battle and the battle is deciding something really, really important and political. But then the people who are actually fighting the battle have some personal like deeply, deeply personal agenda, something that they're trying to express about like grace or beauty or their relationships to each other, what they think uh, a good person or a heroic person or a person who goes down in history is supposed to do. The best moments in Thousand Arrows bind all of those things together. That's why I love Betrayal so much, because Betrayal, in addition to being like the most important like historical dynamic in in the the Warring States period, combines so many of those things. You can't betray someone and have them not feel passionate about it. If you if they don't, then you haven't betrayed them enough. And betrayal is also the most powerful mechanism in Thousand Arrows. Everybody has a bunch of stats called attachments, because we've already talked in that Yagyu context about why attachments are bad for you. So you have attachments to all of the other uh, player characters at the table, and you have an attachment to whatever like virtue or ideal or drive uh, is most important to you. Um, but the most powerful thing that you can do in Thousand Arrows is betray one of your attachments. And all you have to do is say, I'm betraying this attachment, and describe how you betray them. And at that moment, we set aside the dice, we set aside the rules, and you just get complete narrative control over what happens in the moment of your betrayal. If you've played Masks, uh, this is an adaptation of the moment of truth mechanism. So yeah, in that moment, um, when you turn your back on one of your passions, your martial and narrative power is unmatched. And then when it's over, then, you know... 
you sit there and you accept all the consequences. A lot of people like to die in their betrayal, like <laughs> moments of truth. Like people are sure. really into glorious self-destruction and I ain't mad at that. But yeah, if you don't manage to get yourself killed as, as seems to be very popular, although not required, then afterwards there's going to be all kinds of consequences in that moment, which unites all of the things that thousand arrows uh, is about all eyes are on you and you have more power than anyone or anything. Right. So your, your reward is pure freedom to, to tell it your way. Right. And to have all eyes on you mm-hmm. and to get a hundred percent spotlight for that, for that moment. Right. And then there's all kinds of penalties that you have to face afterwards. Like you no longer have an attachment to that thing and you have to rewrite the attachment to be about something else or have some radically different quality. And it caps out at a lower number. So there's a, there's a lower point at, that you can reach before you start getting like dangerously obsessed a la darkest self and monster hearts um but the thing about betrayal is because they are so powerful the most reliable way to prevent someone else from betraying you is to betray them first (laughs) (laughs) and this was the most common way to deal with that particular situation in thousand hour in in the japanese warring states period as well uh we talked earlier about the battle of sekigahara one of my favorite stories about that is that there was a a mori clan commander who planned to go to the battle of sekigahara fighting for the western team and then betray the western team to the eastern team like everybody else and join tokugawa but he couldn't because his commanding officer lord kikawa refused even to go to the battle of sekigahara at at all because he had prearranged that betrayal with Tokugawa Ieyasu. So <laughs> this guy was betrayed from betraying his commander because his immediate superior betrayed his commander first. Wow. Yeah. That's dizzying. Yes. <laughs> Yes, that's incredible. So it's cool that that's a more of a feature of your game. And I think that gives listeners some insight into the differences or some of the additional differences between these sort of stories and straight wuxia stories. Yeah. Uh, I know that you and I or you and Eric and I, all three of us are fellow uh, Hearts of Wuline stretch goal yes. authors. Eric and I collaborated on a piece about describing fight scenes and you are working on one called Fight Me IRL. Yes. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yes. Fight Me IRL is the cyberpunk stretch goal. And uh, so there's some stuff about, you know, bionics and there's some stuff about, you know, futuristic cities and, and megacorps. But um, I think the heart of Fight Me IRL is that it talks about martial arts culture on the internet, and that is very heavily influenced by uh, martial arts culture on the internet today. <laughs> so I do a lot of martial arts, which means that I'm friends on Facebook with a lot of martial artists, and a lot of those martial artists are older or boomers or older than that. <laughs> um, and I don't know, like... The, the martial art I spend the most time doing these days is Japanese. Japanese martial arts in America uh, tends kind of conservative um, and libertarian, especially. And so there's a, there's a special and particular flavor of arguments that, that happens in that community uh, that I'm trying to capture in, uh, in Fight Me IRL. So in addition to all of the regular wuxia drama, there is all kinds of internet drama. And, you know, it's still in the draft stage, so, you know, Lowell and, and Joyce might still shoot all of this stuff down. But, for example, there's a character type who, in addition to the regular five elements, water, metal, earth, 
wood fire has the sixth element of likes. <laughs> and so in addition to instead of rolling anything else, you can like stake your internet reputation on something and roll with likes or expend likes in order to like get something done. There's a prize fighter character who can um promote a fight. And then there's a list of people who you can you can pick from. Okay, I want uh, three choices from this list to show up at the fight, and it's like you know a, a famous promoter or your your lover or your rival's lover or your mom or your haters. So you can you can pick from one of those. Um, and then there's some talk about bionics and ableism and uh, like relationships like they're into the concept of cyberware. So there's quite a bit going on in this uh, uh, setting that you're that you're designing. So what I'm curious about is the melodrama and violence. Is it all rhetorical? Is it all people who are arguing with each other and and making like forging their narrative in that arena to some extent yes you can argue for way way longer in this setting uh than you can in uh in other contexts in hearts of wulin and the the principle of like uh talking in a circumspect way around things um is inverted (laughs) instead people get like they leap to extremes they leap to conclusions they say the most inflammatory version of what they were going to say and then you have to you have to pull the meaning out of something not by like extrapolating into the truth but by pulling back from like the rant that was there into what they're actually trying to express that's delightful <laughs> in addition i thought that i think that the cyberpunk setting brings fisticuffs into like a new kind of relevance because it's a setting with like flying death robots where actual wars are being fought through like cyber warfare or through having your flying robots fight their flying death robots and like pressing a button and blowing people up uh three countries away so there's this so it starts with this question of like well why do you fight because you're not fighting just to win and kill people there's quicker and easier ways to do that you're living in a cyberpunk city and whatever you're doing is not about that so why fight so a lot of these things which um which make hearts of wu lin um which make wu xiao melodrama work instead of the instead of the melodrama coloring the combat the melodrama is the focus and then the combat colors that okay all right cuz that's why you fight you fight for the sake of the melodrama okay all right that that puts it into perspective for me i appreciate that also there's there's really good gun control in the future so it's really hard to get like firearms or weapons so like you have to punch each other yeah no kidding <laughs> yeah <laughs> one, one can only hope um right <laughs> <laughs> yeah my my favorite my favorite line that i wrote is uh, it is the near future. The sky is the color of television tuned to a dead channel, except no one's television is channels anymore because of streaming services. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. Fantastic. Well, speaking of the near future, I think uh, we have reached the end of our discussion. We've had a, a lot of good topic covered throughout the entire discussion, and we really appreciate you coming on. Uh, is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up? Uh, no, nothing. Nothing leaps to mind. Uh, this was really, really fun, and I really hope that everybody out there goes and watches Yagyu Clan Conspiracy. And uh, yeah. there's a sequel also that I'm really excited to watch. What is it called? Righteous Revenge or something? Uh, Samurai Reincarnation or something? That's it. Samurai and, Reincarnation. It's the and next it's about, time that Sony Chiba yeah. uh, dons the 
yeah Yujube character and in that one i think he goes to the the shimabara rebellion which is it took place in that was four years later in 1628 when a bunch of christians and peasants and former samurai in the south of japan rose up around this 16 year old boy who decided he was a christian prophet wow okay yeah (laughs) all right (laughs) sounds like a good time (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's uh it has a it has a tragic ending, as you can probably what, predict. What a, what a surprise! Yeah, <laughs> odd that a tragedy spawned a sequel, but you know yeah. what? If it works, it works, right? <laughs> I mean, how many uh, how many Oedipus plays were there? There were three, right? Yeah, that's yeah, right. Well. Yep. <laughs> uh, all right, cool. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for listening, uh, and remember to make your going through stronger. I will. I'll close out. I will. I, I here. I will end with. A, a piece of advice that Lou Reed from the Velvet Underground once gave me about my kung fu, which was, don't hit your foot, kick your hand. <laughs> no Love context. It. No context for that. John Who Hustle is being released on Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs. <laughs>